the first night of any tour, you can bet your life, you can test all the equipment. Mm -hmm. I go crazy testing everything. Everything's all right, and the guys are worried because the first show. Right. You know, and you test everything out perfectly. Yeah. The minute they step on the stage, the damn thing goes off. <laughs> it gives you trouble. Yeah, naturally. There was one, the last tour we did, the only nights in Chicago. This week's Wimbledon is Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Well, John, in all the fest preparations, we haven't gotten a chance to talk with you about the upcoming Revolver Box. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. <laughs> I am so excited. It's in a lot of people's lists, considered the best album that they did. Very creative. And, you know, a lot of stuff has come out over the years. The, uh, alternate beginning for yellow submarine and the demo for i'm only sleeping and but a box set that i'm really looking forward to yeah not to mention paperback rider and rain i mean i would love to get dissections of each of those hopefully they still have the individual tracks that they put together and i'm not sure because i mean giles has always said that they didn't have all that stuff that they had recorded a bunch of stuff directly to the same track. Right. So we'll see, but yeah, I, you know, we're all excited. I hope it's out at the end of October as was theorized by the Beatle fan folks, but that also seems awfully quick. Right. But you know, have no idea really how long they've been working or at least have an eye towards it in the background as they did all the things. Yeah. I mean, Sam O'Kell all the way back at the beginning of May said that they were working on the next box and in fact the whole chain that they were going to quote start in the middle and move backwards so revolver seems as middle as you can get yeah so you know by the time they get to the please please me album the technology will be such that we could do all those individual tracks <laughs> pull apart whatever we can off of the two tracks yeah how many individual tracks are you going to get at most you've got five or six instruments, maybe a couple vocals sitting on each song. Right. And whatever so. keyboards George Martin yeah, added. Exactly. So what you're about to hear is a show that we did live from the Fest for Beatles fans from Sunday at 2.30 in the afternoon. Yes. A great chat, even though 
at times the uh, festivities from other places come wafting in. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, they put the podcasting room right next to the Apple Jam stage. Yep, and those bass guitars carry. <laughs> so I've cleaned it up as much as possible. We've talked with Ken Womack, and Kiddo 2 was also there with us. I will say I am amazed at how well Zencaster has worked in presenting a decent, if not perfect, recording. Thanks to them. It was a, a really interesting chat, I thought. Lots of good questions. Yeah, he revealed a lot more than I thought he was going to. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm definitely looking forward to his his work in the coming year. Well, especially since he told us that in 2024 sometime early in the year, he's coming out with basically everything. Right. He's going to release more or less all of the source material. And he's doing it because of a great philosophy, which is, you know, when you put all this stuff out, there are people who may see something, connect something, take the deeper dive that, he didn't have time to do or the ability people are in niche as well i mean you'll you'll hear him explain it better than we can at at the end of this show just real briefly i was on some other panels we do have recordings of them and i will be putting them up over the next few weeks i was on the academic panel talking about academics and the beatles that was a real interesting chat uh, i was on the media panel and in fact i Spoke more on the media panel than I intended to, but oh well. <laughs> Look for that. Both of which also feature Dr. Womack and Dr. O'Toole. <laughs> the doctors. So, all right. Without further ado, we present our chat from Sunday afternoon at 2.30, Sunday, August the 14th. So, uh, guessing with us, first off, everyone's favorite, the queen of all Beatles media, Kid O'Toole. Hey, Kid. <laughs> and and Ken Womack, uh, the man who's going to tell us all about Mal Evans, maybe not today, but shortly. <laughs> so the topic we decided on, before we get to see everything in your books, Mal did a couple of interviews for KCSN, Cal State Northridge. How was Mal associated with that radio station? He isn't at all. So what happened, uh, to help you understand uh, how we have those wonderful artifacts of Mal talking about his life and times. What, what a treat to have those recordings, which, as you know, have been available for quite some time. Um, he recorded both of those interviews in the fall of 1975. Uh, he is starting to do uh, some PR in advance of a big book publication. Uh, I think they had a summer 76 plan for the release of his memoirs. Um, I'd have to check my notes. I'm already giving too much away. This is what Ed and uh, and the kitten do to me. But in any event, Laura Gross was a very close friend of Mal and his girlfriend, Fran. And she mentions that in the show. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely close friends. And that's the only reason Mal's doing it, um, is for Laura. Laura was about 20, 21. She is a budding rock journalist. She will eventually have a second life with the Beatles and Neil Aspinall. And will form a production company, which is called Leg, Laura E. Gross, still in existence today. She will shoot a lot of the B-roll for the anthology and many of the other projects uh, that the Beatles have done, and particularly in the, in the 90s and beyond. So she's a, a player in that world and, and in, in general in the world of rock media. But here she is, a young woman trying to make it as a journalist, and friends with Mal, and they said, let's do this interview. So that's 
that's how that happened. She was a student or had just graduated from Northridge. Okay. All right. So that, that's part one. Should I hit Ken Doyle now, too? Go, go ahead. Okay. So Ken Doyle wore a new Ken, uh, who was a budding DJ himself, uh, also at Cal State Northridge. And Ken Doyle, uh, when, as they got closer to the end of the year, Mal wants to do some more publicity. Mm-hmm. But he and Ken had kind of screwed up a little bit, as Ken's sometimes. <laughs> okay. Um, and what, where they went wrong is this. Um, they forgot that the school year was over. So here they are in, a, in the Cal State Northridge radio station. And Mal shows up on campus and he meets Ken Doyle. And guess how many students are around that day? It's called none. <laughs> Just like any campus, once the winter holidays, the winter break has begun. And so Ken brought around his friend Rip Ritz, who is a personality well-known in Southern California, to be there with him. So the three of them went over to the radio station to, uh, to record that interview. Now that went out first. It went out on what appears to be a call-in show? It was a call-in show. Now... The first show, though, was was recorded first, and and he makes a point at the end of the uh, the interview. That interview went out live. Is that correct? Or it is correct. Okay. Um, Laura Gross's interview was recorded first. Mal's was recorded at the tail end of a week in which Paul McCartney was in uh, Los Angeles. And he actually mentions and that. He does mention it was a very important meeting for for Mal. Uh, and he also caught up with Neil, who had come through because now uh, they're reviving the Beatles. Post Beatles partnership. What's this going to look like? And and uh, Neil needed some work. He needed to, uh, you know, have something to do that was positive. They trusted him, and so Neil is gearing up for what we all know will happen through 2006 as the executive director. And if you listen to these interviews collectively, the piece he played uh, Friday night from the fest is invaluable. But this is just tremendous stuff. And Mal sounds happy. I mean. I know your hypothesis is that he was not in a good place at this time, but he doesn't sound that way. No, no, because Mal, like a lot of folks that all of us know, lived his life in compartments. All of us find ourselves at times probably having the home compartment, the Beatles compartment, the being the queen. (laughs) Um, But in any event, he lived in compartments. He has his, his kids in, you know, outside of London and, his Beatle compartment was very happy. He had come to the fest and been in an elevator with Al Sussman, who is here in attendance right now. Anybody who's been in an elevator with Al <laughs> is in big trouble. He's very happy. And so he is in a wonderful Beatles place. He's just seen Paul. They've had some very formative discussions about things they're going to do together. A few days later, he talked to John on the phone. George called all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was constantly being harassed. He had, I think, Christmas dinner with Ringo. So his Beatle world is wonderful. And that's that ebullience mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. you hear on those recordings. Uh, and you had showed Mal's invitation to uh, the Venus and Mars party on, on the QE2. Right. He was at the top of any invitation list along with the four ex-Beatles, as we weirdly <laughs> called them. You're never an ex-Beatle. I think, I think yeah. we need to lose that term, right? Yeah. I still use it, too, and I, I think it's probably so inaccurate. It suggests that there are now new Beatles, right? That they're former Beatles because they've been replaced. Um, it's not like the monkeys where they can just crank out four more and put them on TV, although the new monkeys didn't do much better, did no, they? No, no, no. It's not like that. I guess it was a, invented sometime in, in 
in the 70s, and it became a kind of a truism in terms of journalistic writing about the Beatles. And it's kind of a dopey thing that we all need to get out of our vocabularies. It, it was kind of, it kind of to establish the, the previous career from what they were doing then. That's right. Uh, and of course, what's fascinating to me, and it's a very good point, John, about writing about the Beatles is when you do it, as many folks in this room can attest, you're always writing about something that is an unsettled question. You know, if you try to write about the Beatles as, as what they are, which is the greatest art movement of the 20th century, with reverberations through all of the rest of the centuries, as long as we can listen to music, I believe, um, they're a settled question. They are the Beatles, large, they're bigger than life. But one of the tricks, and I, I know Kit wrestles with this too, is you have to tell the story as though it's still unfolding. And it was still unfolding in the 70s, right? We don't know what it's going to be. Even after John is senselessly murdered, we don't know what it's going to be. And I mean, even to a certain extent today, we don't know what it's going to be. That's right. Yeah. Well said, Ed. Okay. So I mentioned the QE2, the Venus and Mars, because Mao mentions it in the interview. He mentions how he felt tremendous at having people ask him to have his picture taken at Paul McCartney's party. (laughs) He loved that. Uh, There's a great scene that he narrates in his papers. He has a tremendous number of manuscripts where he and Paul were meeting a very famous actress of the day in an airport when they were changing planes. It was during one of their travels in the mid-60s. And, of course, Paul was being photographed with her. And Mal was really pissed because (laughs) he kept trying to get into the picture, you know. (laughs) And if he can't get into the picture, nobody can because he's huge. Uh, and he was quite frustrated by the, the whole experience. <laughs> That's what really struck me, you know, listening to these interviews. Of course, you know, we tend to think of it as, my gosh, he was the ultimate insider. And, you know, wouldn't it be incredible to talk to him and hear his stories? But he was the ultimate fan himself. You know, when you hear him you know, talk about the Beatles, but he also talks about his experiences of meeting Elvis meeting Frank Sinatra, meeting Marlon Brando. And I mean, the way he speaks in these interviews and even, you know, the taste we got listening to him talk at the the 75 Beatle Fest. I mean, he just sounds like, can you believe this? I got to hang out with Frank Sinatra and drink. Yeah, I mean, doesn't it seem to you like he was just the ultimate fan? He really is. And as you may, I, I can't recall if he's in that excerpt or not, but he says things like, I am you. I'm just one of you. Do you get the feeling that Mal saw the Beatles as being these people he kind of grew up with? I mean, was he truly a fan of the Beatles or was he a fan of other people? And the Beatles experience allowed him to meet Marlon Brando and all these other folks. But to him, the Beatles were kind of the guys. I'm six foot three. I'm one of the biggest Beatles fans. Yeah, the Beatles are the guys, but they're also. My wife disagrees with this argument, so I, I, let's see what you guys think. But I'll take Jimmy inside. <laughs> <laughs> well, then Ed, take the others. Okay, I'll take your side. <laughs> Thank you. We have a pact. <laughs> take each other's side. Despite being in Kit's hometown, we're making Kit the outsider. We got three Texans and and, and one Chicago yeah, person, so we win. She's always the outlier. Okay, <laughs> that's okay. She's the queen. The queen. Right. So Mal and, and literally Janine will cringe when I say this, but he worshipped them like heroes. Particularly Paul, he elevated Paul to a hero status. He will say at times in his diaries, "My hero, Paul." 
So I feel like I, I know you're playing the Janine role in this, but I feel like when somebody writes, my hero Paul, my long-loved Paul, he sounds like somebody who's treating them in, in a kind of fanish way, right? Yes. Yeah, so I, I think it's more of that, John. But yeah, the Beatles gave him entree to see all of the people that he'd watched in the 40s and the 50s and the early 60s in film and television who were larger than life people to him. And now he's hanging out with Marlon Brando, right? I mean, that's right. that's huge to him. And, and the Rock Hudson thing. And the yeah. Rock, yeah, he's just a fan of these folks. But of course, he also had something I think that we'll all value. He had that canny ability to understand that their music was something extraordinary. And he wasn't just listening. He also recognized as much as he could put it into words, they were bigger than Elvis his other love, right? His other hero that artistically they were doing something much more significant, important. That was not lost on Mal. And at a certain point he would genuflect to them, I guess, in a way and give of himself deeply. So there's a misnomer that Mal stops working for the Beatles when they break up and become ex Beatles, former Beatles, right? He never stops. Even when he wants to stop and he's thinking about doing other things, the next day in his diary, he's working on Goodnight Vienna. <laughs> you know, it's just a line from The Godfather. You know, I try to get out. They pull me back they pull in. Me back yeah, in. Yeah. So right. even when he wants to try to do something else, he can't not stage manage their records. And he's been doing that for John, George, and Ringo throughout the 70s. And here's Paul mm-hmm. showing up at the height of his fame. And, uh, and getting ready to come on as this big world tour the next year. Right. And, and remember, Mal knows what to do on a tour. <laughs> and this time he wouldn't be doing it alone. Yeah. yeah. He gets somebody else to move the drums. That's right. Yeah, but they'll still make him carry the amp. <laughs> now they're those damn Marshall stacks. So they're heavier. <laughs> right. Well, and he also talks about that, that, you know, it's not the same as it was in the 60s. That There's so much equipment that it would be a completely different job. Yeah, and it will be, and it would have been if he'd hung on a little longer. Well, do you think that Paul might have bought him into the Wings Over the World Tour? Oh, absolutely. I feel certain of that, and uh, I've worked with some McCartney folks, people who write about McCartney, sorry, not his team or anything. I think he was going to be involved at some level. Well, Ken, was the feeling reciprocated, or do you know, uh, by McCartney towards Mal? He is the one who suggests getting together in for the 1976 tour. So that was what happened on that phone call. Paul was actually calling Mal to say, hey, I'm going to be going on this tour. Among many, many other things, that was a few that I'm still trying to source that are quite exciting. He knew that Mal adored him. They worked, of course, fiercely together on the McCartney record until Paul said, you know, well, now you set up everything, but Linda's going to come in and make the tea. And Mal was like, What? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I make the tea. Linda can't make beans and toast as America. <laughs> That's going to be crap beans and toast. I'm telling you right now. That was an issue. He would help Paul uh, with, would it be the 1973 Wings tour? He actually did some consulting work. Did, did he? I didn't know that. It's not as though they're estranged. It's just, let's face it, and this has come up many times this weekend at the fest. Paul, like Kit, he's the outlier beetle. You know, he's uh, no, he's the one who broke up the band. He's the one who sued them in high court. So it's three against one in this weird way. And for Mal, he's ebullient because of the sheer fact he's got all of the baseball cards back together. Right. The set wasn't complete. And now now Paul's back. and He's really thrilled about that. 
I can't prove this, so this is just mm-hmm. a hypothesis. Mr. Sun, there you go. Method. But, you know, when he sees Paul and John together in March and early April 1974, Mal's in tears. I mean, he can't believe that they're playing together and they're hanging out at the beach, you know, at the seaside mansion that May had rented. And it's just. Well, then, then related to that. Mal says, oh, well, Paul came by every day. He didn't come by every day. No, was, you know, was, was there much more than just the one or two times that we know that there are photographs of? So I've talked to May about this a lot, and uh, it feels like it was the session, the toot and the snort, terrible session. Uh, has anybody seen May's film, by the way, her documentary? Oh, yeah. It's lovely. It is. And yeah. the way they use the animation to bring those stories yes. to life is brilliant. Very nicely done. And actually, May does all the voices, which is really fun. Oh, I didn't she know She actually that. does the voices of the other people. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really cool. And that Mal's animated in it, too. But anyway, it looks like we've got the session and then probably two times that Paul and Linda brought the kids by because, hell, it's got a pool, so you know the kids are going to be happy. <laughs> Anna Beach, Ringo's there. Everybody loves Ringo. Keith Moon, I might not want to leave him alone with the kids. They might (laughs) or get exploded. Who knows? But Harry's there, mostly docile. So, you know, they came by a couple of times. They love Southern California. Linda did. They drove all over the place, family trips, etc. But I think they were there twice. Okay. Well, since you brought it up, let's talk about Keith Moon's In My Life, which actually gets played in these specials. And John Lennon apparently writing a note on a white card to Mal saying, oh, this is the best version of the song ever. Uh, One thing that I think John Lennon gets a bad rap for is being this kind of acerbic, witty person. John is a very sentimental man, and he's a very nice man. Because there's no way he believed what he was putting on paper. (laughs) Okay. I think he was being supportive of his buddy who wanted to be a producer. It's not a bad version in my life. It's not a bad version, but I wouldn't say it's the quality of the no matter what recording. No, for sure. Okay. So Mal is a producer. Uh, He talks about working with Natural Gas, Joey Mullins' band, and how he sees that as being his future. Well, and he's right. This is a guy who has a top five single, international hit. I talked to a fellow who works uh, on songs of the key of life, most of the Stevie Wonder records. And he said Mal was damn good behind the desk. He said he took a light touch. He wasn't a producer who would bark out orders or start shaping things. He's not Phil Spector. Yeah, no, he worked the track. Uh, And he watched George Martin and everybody else do it for decade, right? So he, he knew his way around the room and how to get a, a coax of recording out. His recordings with Natural Gas in the last week, I, I suppose, of 75, or I have them. They're great. They're certainly not inferior to the ones that would be on their album. Well, then why was he replaced? He wasn't. He, well, because he died. I, yes, but the way I read the story... The record company really didn't want him to be producing the record. Okay, so it's, it's not because it was Mal. Now, Mal has a problem. His wife, uh, not wife, his girlfriend, his wife is in England, and they were always married. The, the infamous Fran Hughes, who, right. who we've spoken of. Yeah. Right, so Fran and Fran I've interviewed for hours. Uh, Fran no longer worked for the record plant at this point. Okay. And because there was a little bit of harsh feelings... At this point, Fran would later get back in the good graces of the record plant folks, whom we all know historically very well. Uh, but at this point, that healing hasn't occurred. And so they don't record at the record plant where Mal is most comfortable. Dan Medavino, who's written, as I'm sure all of you know, this fantastic book on Badfinger. He's recently put it out finally as an ebook. 
for a very reasonable, I suggest you get it. It is uh, just an extraordinary book. Theirs is the most tragic story in rock. Mal is pretty close, but he's not that figure. Mm-hmm. But in any event, Mal was on a conference call, and Dan did a, a really uh, significant amount of hard work to get this information. So I want to make sure he's credited here. Now they've done the demos. Okay. They're negotiating the production of Natural Gas's record. Natural Gas has enough clout because they're the remnants of Badfinger, or at least Joey is. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> well, as he's known today, he's uh, Badfinger featuring Joey Mullen. There you go. I so, mean, if you saw the the tour that they just did. That's literally how he's built. Yeah. I bring all of this up because Malvin gets on the conference call and he's in one of these moments of negotiation. Yeah, we've all been in these, right? You've got to stand up for yourself. So we do one of two things, right? We, we may undervalue and say, you know what, I'll, I'll do this for free or I'll do this for scale or whatever. Mal went the other way. He went for a Mal-sized fee. <laughs> and what happened was the record company thought, well, we're putting a lot of money into this. We're not doing that. And so at that point, um, they were like, let's pick this up at the new year. And have another call and talk about it. Gotcha. But Mal's opening bid was not a smart play. For, for someone who was not really a known producer, it was not a wise move to go out and say, give me this money. Right. Of course, at this period, you know, record companies were still putting a lot of upfront money into records in ways they certainly wouldn't be doing today. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> and so at this point, they had used a lot of whatever budget they were going to out, outlay for natural gas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look, let's face it, they'd heard the demos. That's why they're having this. this yeah, they're, they're, they're happy enough, but they're not these great commercial things. These aren't songs like No Matter What and Day mm-hmm, After Day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that just have hit written all over them. So they're probably thinking we're going to be in the natural gas business for maybe two or three albums. Let's not blow everything now, Mr. Evans, you know, on spec. Get it. Let's get some hits first. So I, I think that's a good way to read the evidence. Okay. Uh, and then so uh, his first production duties were with Jackie Lomax at Apple. Is that correct? No. No, he'd already worked with the Ivies. Oh, okay. Uh, when, when he did the Jackie Lomax record. Okay. Yeah, he, and, and he just did the one piece, you know. Yeah. There, I find it fascinating that at a certain point, the only two people who seem to give a damn anymore about finding Apple artists are Mal Evans and George Harrison. And most of George's are Mal's. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, et cetera. Right. Half-breed, uh, you know, all of those bands. You also said something earlier that, that caught my ear, and that was songs that had hits written all over it. But he had to fight for no matter what, didn't he? Oh my gosh, yes. And actually it wasn't, uh, and my friend Al might remember this name, was it Howard Isaacson? Am I getting that right? Yeah, so when Alan Klein took Apple into that weird kind of receivership, after he found out he wasn't allowed to fire Mal and Neil, (laughs) because they didn't work for him. (laughs) That's one of those great moments in life that I hope we all get to experience. Someone says, I'm firing you, and 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 they get to say, that's great, I don't work for you. (laughs) Right. You know, I I love that, you know, that that kind of in-your-face moment of empowerment. Go on, fire me again. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so they couldn't fire him. In fact, he would cease working for them long before Neil and Mal was not getting paid anymore. So 
But Alan's one saving grace as he shut down all of these wonderful releases. And uh, Tony Bramwell said to me that this was the tragedy of Apple because they had really put together a very interesting and eclectic catalog of future artists. And it got killed in that period when Alan really, really went into receivership. And uh, Tony has suggested, and I, I believe he's correct, that they probably lost untold millions in publishing by not following through. But it was Howard who came on board and said, you know, guys, several of these songs really should be released. And he had heard No Matter What, uh, that really great raw version that Mal produced. He said, this thing's ready to go. Why is this not out? And it was because of Howard Isaacson that, that it hit the hit the charts and got out in the world. Now, Mal was happy to be right in front of it, you know, with bells on, helping to see it become a success. Very good. Right. So, so to turn to Righteous uh, for just a minute, did Mal take advantage of the groupies or not? He kind of says goes both ways in what he mentions in there. You know, he, he talks about, he didn't mind, quote, the side effects. And then later on, uh, I believe it's in the, the second interview, he then says, oh, well, you know, uh, I knew that these girls were there for the Beatles. They weren't there for me. I wouldn't do anything with them because of that. That contradiction between a matter of days, not to get all uh, gossipy. Although we do have a tendency to occasionally get gossipy, don't we, John? Uh, occasionally, yes. Um, <laughs> you kind of answered your own question, though, in a sense, because, right? I mean, he told you the truth one time, and for some reason, during Christmas vacation on the Cal State Northridge campus, you know, with a person he doesn't know, okay, he's backtracking. So. Fair, fair enough. And then, and and look, this is something that's pretty widely, yeah. And widely I mean, uh, about, what, what was that Australian documentary, the, the when the Beatles made us go wild or whatever? There's actually a particular story in that about Mal and uh, well, things. Well, I mean, I think you know, again, I mean, I, I think the that you know, Mal. It probably, in some ways, probably Mel, you know, wanted to be the Beatles. And then, oh, he comes out and says it, you yeah, know. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, when you get caught up in, in madness, that was Beatlemania at the time. I mean, that's, you know, it's what's going to happen. I mean, that's... It's, uh, and, and, then, and then a day later, going to the next city and having no one there screaming for you or it's yeah. got to be a little bit disappointing. Yeah, yep. but, but I mean, the whole, you know, the whole thing, I mean, it's, it was probably intoxicating. I mean, it's, it's just the getting caught up in that whole thing. Sure. But let's face it, they were intoxicated too. Yeah. Um, you know, in deep, sober backcast and retrospective, George Harrison will say things like, you know, we gave our nervous system. Right. I, I'm not doubting the validity of these comments. And John Lennon would say, you know, we sold our souls for all of this. But, you know, they were intoxicated, too, when you read the scenes that Mal, as you will, narrates in several times in his, his many manuscripts. Everybody's intoxicated by this. I don't think they've quite come to realize that there's, they're working in this kind of outlier space that doesn't, doesn't it's not real life. Yeah. You know, who really picked up on that well was our friend Larry King. Yeah. Um, and uh, he had a very nice riff about this, about when he started to realize, you know, he, his was alcohol. He's like, I normally don't drink, but suddenly I'm developing a problem, <laughs> yeah. you know, because I'm not only am I getting access to liquor, but it's like the really good stuff and it's free. Yeah. You know, what the hell? Uh, well, and he talks about that when he was hanging yeah. out with Sinatra. Right. And it's just, there's something 
something out of whack, and so we're dealing with this outlier piece of celebrity and outlier region of of achievement. It was Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, they asked him in a Rolling Stone interview once. He said, "Is there anybody you're jealous of?" He goes, "Oh, the Beatles. They had critical and commercial success, both to the nth degree. That's what I want." <laughs> There you go. That's right. (laughs) And how exactly he can confuse 1968 and 1966 with regards to the Sinatra meeting, it's like, how reliable was Mal's memory at that time? Because, again, sometimes it seems it's spot on, sometimes it seems a little bit, well, I don't remember exactly this, that, or the other. That's an interesting point, because Mal knows that a few miles away back at his duplex is this treasure trove Mm -hmm. of paper contemporaneous notes. I've had to break them all into notebooks. Mm-hmm. He's got like a 1966 notebook. He's got the, the 1975 notebook where you just spent days trying to remember everything properly in order. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the notebook after he's dead of all the correspondence dealing with this material. So the reason I bring this up is I think Mal knew that he had this documentation mm-hmm. where he was pretty right. Plus, he had written several manuscripts and had his diaries where he could go back and confirm things. So I don't know how uh, how much he's adhering to facticity on those. Fair, fair enough. And, uh, he probably did better with Laura simply because he knew her better. And she also had, you know, seen the materials. And OK, OK. And spent a lot of time over it at Fran and Mal's place. Good, good enough. As I had asked you the other day, the, the Elvis thing. So you're saying that in what he wrote in 1965, he says that the Beatles jammed with Elvis. So, so and you said he listed some songs. Do you care to reveal what some of those might be? No, I don't. <laughs> you know why? I don't remember. And what makes that 1965 material, which I'm now telling the world for the first time, so valuable is Mal devoted several hundred pages. I think about Let's go in word count, right? Because writers go in word count, not pages, as my friend Karen knows. He wrote about 42,000 words to compartmentalize his notes from 65, because that tour was very important. I I argue, and uh, I think my friend Al agrees, and I know uh, our really good friend um, who has written the definitive books about the tours, uh, Chuck also agrees. That 65 tour was the darkest one. And it ends in mayhem at the Cow Palace. I mean, it's like a scene on a battlefield. You know, there's violence uh, such as they had never seen before. Um, even more harrowing than the crowds in, in uh, Down Under. Well, and- you know, Mal is, you know, he's out there like ministering and doing triage to fans after the show's over. You know, it's a, it's a hellhole. And um, he really wanted to take some time and tell all those stories. Unfortunately, one of them was Elvis. Yeah. And Mal, loving Elvis as he did, devotes like this big fat middle section uh, to that whole experience. Even the fact that it it was a last minute of they had a last minute opportunity to go and see him in Bel Air. Mm. You know, because Colonel Tom Parker, really being the above board man that he is, was rather you know, just a <laughs> class act. Um, he would. He would toy with them. He'd have Brian and Mal were usually the ones who would be at his office. And he'd be like, well, I think Elvis will meet you. You know, it's like all these power moves. Because as we all know, Elvis had been displaced. You know, he's making 
blue Hawaii and they're making revolver. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about the 65 tour. We have one question about Houston here. The reception at the airport, Houston, does Mal say anything about it? Because there's a couple of questions that I have about so, what happened there. So, yeah, and uh, the best information, again, Mal is great on all of this. Okay. So, for example, Yes, you're going to read about how horrible it was when he was jerked off the plane in Manila, right? Yeah. That's there. Mm-hmm. But in 65, it seemed like every airport was a disaster. There was no right move they could make. Mm-hmm. They'd try getting off the back of the plane, and they'd be swarmed there. I forgot which city it is in 65, but one city actually allotted two sheriffs. For the yeah, and, and he mentions that. And the, as yeah. soon as the doors open. And they were just, yeah. And Mal actually went up to them. He said, I think two is not enough. And they would not listen to him. Yeah. And he said, you know, we had 1,200 in L.A. <laughs> They're like, well, that's L.A. You know, here, in, here in Minneapolis. Everybody behaves. I mean, I don't think it was Minneapolis. But yeah, every airport. Houston was a bad scene. There's no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah. And, and the reason I ask is there's still an outstanding question in my mind whether that was the accident which would lead to one of Brian's uh, prescription addictions. Oh, he's hurt pretty badly. Brian is hurt. He falls off the the conveyance in the back of the airplane. They had to lift up a food truck, and and the Beatles and Brian and and Mal jumped into this food truck, and the the crane that's holding it up is still shaking with the kids. And Brian falls off the side. I mean, full body from like eight, ten feet, you know. I, it hurts to think about it. Brian is not a buff guy. You know, it, he was in big trouble. It, he was really damaged uh, at that incident. But the, the incident that they mentioned in these interviews is that Lauren Gross talks about seeing them at Dodger Stadium and ha- having them not be able to escape. And as you say, Mal says, well, you know, that was just another Friday afternoon for us. Uh, I'll have to check my diaries to see exactly what happened on that day. It was horrible. They were trapped, in a sense. At Dodger Stadium was a disaster. Uh, can I ask one more question? Sure. Have you ever been to a concert where the audience went completely bananas? Yeah. And they, you know, completely rushed the stage. Sure. And they had to. Sure, we sure did. I remember one in particular it was at Cow Palace in San Francisco, and we were like an hour late arriving for the show, and I normally look at after the security check that out, and we didn't have a chance. And apart from that, I was the only time I was been drinking on the job. We'd had three days off in L.A. partying, and uh, it was chaos. Yeah, was that the first show? The first show, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was absolutely chaotic. It was a bit frightening, you know, because uh, individually the fans love them and give them so much over the years in the way of presents and things and buying their records, but en masse they're a bit frightening. So much love can be very dangerous and damaging if they get too near you, mm-hmm. you know? So it's... Uh, there's always been a problem, security. Yeah. Candlestick Park was actually pretty easy, other than getting out of Dodge. But there were there were so many. The, the, the most frightening moments are down under. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mal never really spoke about this publicly, but he had to use his body on several occasions because they came out in such mass in uh, Australia and New Zealand. There's one story that uh, I, think, I think Chuck has some of this, too. They have to go from here where I'm standing about 30 feet to a parking garage, which has a metal gate that has, uh, has, a, has a, mm-hmm. a motor. It's a motorized mm-hmm. metal gate. They're in this limo 
John appreciates you using your hand gestures. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I do. And uh, the hand gesture, of course, okay. was the gate. I have it in my mind. Keep going. But have Mal's much larger hand than mine, John. As you can see, I'm describing it to you, listeners, with my hands. <laughs> I see and... it. Bigger even than Ron Stone's hand. <laughs> um, in any event, the garage is ahead of them. They're in a, I think, a big Cadillac or something. You know, they're bracing the doors because it's being pushed by a thousand people in the space, a very confined space between their hotel and the external parking and finally, because if they, they realize we're going to be here all night, mm-hmm. the cops are inside the garage and they're not coming out. <laughs> and Mal stands up, gets out of the car, and one inch at a time, they move the car behind Mal until they get to the gate and they open it up and all the cops are It took 45 minutes. It's a wonder that... People were not killed on these tours, including the Beatles, who had virtually no security. Uh, It just strikes me that you would think that there would be a lot of um, experience gained from the 64 tour. It's like, so the 65 tour was so much worse, like they hadn't learned anything. Yeah, that's a great observation. And, uh, you know, let's all put in our crystal balls and remember 20, 30, 40 years ago, if, if you can. And the world was certainly more local and regionalized than it is now. And so, I mean, look at that first 64 tour, right? You've got... You've got 20 cities that... That's the Apple Jam stage yeah. right next to us, folks. Yes, that's right. There's, we're next to a very loud amusement park. Yeah. <laughs> that, but anyway, you have 20 cities essentially all doing freelance shows. Right, and in one city it'll be a bunch of DJs that got together and raised some money. And what in Cincinnati it was a bunch of doctors. Yeah. And they said, yeah, we're going to get some Beatles money, right? In another city, it's uh, GAC, mm-hmm. you know, the, yep. the ticket purveyor. Right. So nobody's talking to each other, and Brian and the Beatles are not getting in that conversation ever. Okay. Right. Well, I guess you also have a year's experience of rock and roll tours crossing the country and the fans themselves would learn to become more aggressive to see their heroes. You know, they'll be more aggressive to see the stones or the kinks or whatever. bands. I like that, John, there's a certain kind of tension, right? That is worse and worse and worse. I think it's the dark side of Beatlemania, which takes us right up to an archway in December, 1980 or Friar Park, right? In 1999. There's a dark side to Beatlemania right. that makes people covetous, that makes them aggressive with other people. I mean, there's a terrible scene. I was talking to, to Chuck Gunderson about this. Those last few shows where at a Beatles concert in 1965, they're taking folding chairs and throwing them from the floor ahead closer to the stage where it's, these chairs are hitting the heads of Mostly girls. Wow. And I'm not trying to be gendered about this, right? And I don't think you hear that, but what the hell? And they're hurting people. Right. And at one point, they're they're rushing the stage, and it stopped the show. And they don't know what to do. And uh, the Beatles don't want to go back out. But then you got the GAC representative saying, well, you know, we, we're getting paid for this. <laughs> well, that's why Cleveland banned the Beatles, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they were probably happy. Well, now I'll look at some of that footage from the past, and, and I'll see them carrying out girls. That's right. 
Maybe it's because he'll be clocked by chairs. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I remember reading, uh, you know, Ivor Davis. I, he's been a guest here before, and, and uh, you know, he was uh, also a reporter with Lord of the King and wrote uh, numerous articles uh, about them, and, and he wrote this terrific book, and he wrote about some of those scenes at, at concerts, and, and, I mean, they were just absolutely Violent at times, and you know, people got trampled, and I mean, you know, it was just astounding. And yeah, the security was uh, definitely lacking. Just as they never had the decibels and the ampage to yeah. to handle the shows, they didn't right. have the the people. I mean, how many people did Paul have on his latest tour? Three oh, hundred roadies, exactly. Yeah, you know, Kit and I could not even get to the location of the uh, drive-in. No. Well, if these two can't do it, nobody, nobody can. can. Because they are willing to do things that the rest we, of us. We walked around the entire Orange Bowl. <laughs> yeah. They're willing to walk. Yeah. I don't walk. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's amazing. Um, you, you know, and Mal, you can't sneak into the plaza anymore. No, 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 no. no, no. no and Mal remarked he and Neil were talking with Alvin Bicknell, who wasn't a lot of help, but he was there. I mean, yeah, he's a chauffeur, right? Or Derek Taylor wasn't ready to start mixing it up when he was on 64 tour. Right. Well, you know, Neil kind of had morphed into a role of being the guy who handled the hotel reservations and dealing with with ornery people, front office types. So Mal was often the only roadie, right? The only person who was doing anything. And he was often the only guy for all the acts. Sometimes one of the other acts would have their own guy some childhood friend or something, right, who they'd haul along. But um, it really kind of was ridiculous. And Mal said at one point, so there's Brian, there's Neil and myself and Brian, but Brian didn't do anything, you know. Well, I mean, both with regards to touring and then later in the studio, the, the last word that Mal gets with Laura Gross, it, it, that pretty much describes who and what he was, that he was there to allow the Beatles to go and do the music. And that he'll do anything in the world to make you, meaning the Beatles, comfortable doing that, be it on the stage or be it in the studio. Right, and let's face it, there's our biggest debt to Mal Evans. So Mal doesn't make beans and toast or go out and get their favorite curry or whatever all through the night or go get the, you know, we need, we need those, we need Sonic Blue Stratocasters. <laughs> right? You know, Mal doesn't, or an anvil, I guess, and Twickenham, right? If he doesn't do these things, they go home. You know, they're going to go home, they're tired, they want to go home and eat. He would extend many of their sessions by five, six, eight hours at times by simply being there and being the guy who would do that. Right. And sometimes it'd be the guy who would play something because they wanted a sound and they didn't want to wait for George Martin to find some studio musician. So I think that's our biggest debt to him is the fact that he was the person who allowed them. He's, he's what a, a, a colleague of mine at Mama, she's the honors dean. I love what she does. Whenever we introduce a guest speaker or we have some folks in, she'll say, before we introduce everybody else, I want to talk about the invisible people who really make this happen. My two secretaries, Ken's staff assistant, you know, the person in the billing office who is paying this person. And that's who Mal is, right? He's one of the invisible people. Everybody who's ever created anything had them. I don't care if you're Charlotte Bronte working by candlelight, if you're, uh, James Joyce had an amanuensis, right? Everybody had. Shakespeare did not do things alone. Every single one of these people heard a line and thought, wait a minute, that's going in Jane Eyre. Right? You know, that's what happened. 
Well, and that's how Elvis Costello writes almost everything he does. He just sits there and listens. It's like, I like this line. I like that line. So, you know, really, he writes nothing other than the music. The lyrics all come from other people out there in the world. It's and you you absorb things and that's that's the wonder of especially twentieth and twenty first century art, right? Which is very reflexive and self reflexive. That's what makes it so wonderful. So Val's one of the invisible people, uh, who in many ways gave his life uh, to a lot of this. And so did Neil. You know, he just lives longer. They're not inexhaustible wells. Well, and that was another, I think, wonderful thing that a get back gave us because in addition to Ken's upcoming book, you know, I think, you know, we saw, you know, I really, I think the first time, people just how much Mel did. I really saw him. I mean, we saw that a bit in what it be, but I think we saw it even more to get back. I mean, how much he was there for the entertain the kids. Sure, and, and by the way, everything. so there's a correspondence. This is, I, I would never do this except it's for Ed okay, yeah, and yeah. John, Ron, so. So, <laughs> um, so here it is. Um, you know, Mal writes up the rooftop concert. He writes up the sessions at Twickenham and Apple Studios in his notes, and he writes it up in a couple of manuscripts, but it's almost non-existent his diaries what's the answer he was too busy he didn't have time to whip open this 1970 to 69 diary and write it down he had to do that a few days later a week later all right one more from kit and myself and john if we have one and then we'll we'll turn it over to the audience uh mal and brian what was their relationship it seems at times during these interviews he says nice things about brian and he likes them and at other times as you say it's like well brian did nothing yeah, so Brian and Mal had a blue-collar, white-collar kind of clash. You know, Mal knew how much he was doing. Mm-hmm. He knew that there were many 24-hour periods where he never sleeps. Mm-hmm. You know, because while the Beatles get to go sleep because he drove them home, mm-hmm. uh, he's doing something all night to prepare for the next thing. Mm-hmm. Why were their instruments always ready when they came into play? That's another thing uh, yep. that helped us, right? So they had a clash, but it was kind of an inevitable clash because Brian was very concerned about image. And there were times when Mal had to not be concerned about image. I was talking to Ann Wilson uh, from Heart, from uh-huh. my podcast. And uh, I didn't even talk to her about Mal. She brought him up. Okay. She was talking about that last show in Seattle. Naturally, that's where yeah, she was. Yeah, sure, sure. So there they are in Seattle. And Mal came on stage. And I guarantee you this pissed, this pissed Brian off because he's wearing his sleeves are rolled up. <laughs> no tie. Well, even, even the DC show, you see what he looks like. Yeah. Brian didn't like that. Brian felt like Mal should be dressed up, but Mal is carrying 100-pound amps yep. by himself. He does not have a dolly that he's pushing. Well, and, and and the hotel was nice enough to provide us with a conveyance so we don't have to carry a much lighter speaker there back we go. And this is just so, back across the hall. So. so by 1966, all the fans know who Mal is. And remembers vividly everybody just standing up and yelling, Mal, when he's rolling out on stage after the last uh, opening act is finished. And I bring that up because there were many times when that would happen. And Brian would think, damn it, you should be out there when they cheer for you. (laughs) Look at Spiffy. And Mal would say, I'm sorry, but I'm lifting ants. (laughs) I got work to do. What if my tie gets caught in a... 
you know, uh, inside a box amp. And by the like, 66, they had a big one. Yeah. Wasn't enough. The Super Beetle. That's the Super Beetle. Right. And, and so they had a clash that was often around these sorts of things. So Brian would bite his head off. And after a while, Mal, who was a naturally kind and subservient person, would bite back. Brian really didn't like that. Oh, God. You can bet. Mal was going to write the, uh, his memoirs, which you were drawing from. And you said he used, uh, he sought out the permission of all four Beatles, which, uh, which they gave. You know, and I thought you said Ringo said something. The card that Ringo sent to yeah. Well, I think I know what you're referring to. And, uh, and it was something that Mal took to heart. And I think we will all understand more deeply later. And that is, he said, okay, but if you're going to do this, tell the truth. And I, is that in the card? I don't know that that's Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it was. It, you, you, you were reading from a okay. transcript yeah. of what was on the screen. Okay, thank you. I, I forget. That. That's why I have to have notes, right? Okay. Yeah, well. <laughs> but, yeah, he said. And you aren't even the 27th Beatle. I'm not even, yeah, in, in that enumeration at all. So what had happened was, Ringo said, if you're going to do this, you really ought to tell the truth about us, right? You, this shouldn't be, and that's the big challenge for Mal, and I think one that will play out very interestingly for folks in the next year or so, to see how he did it, because that also meant to Mal, he did something that a lot of people who write autobiographies and memoirs don't do. He told the truth about himself. Both about the Beatles and about himself. So. Yeah. All right, John. Well... I'm almost embarrassed to, to bring this up, but you mentioned earlier about at the end of the Beatles career, as they went off into individual projects, that Mal continued to work with each of them, basically, and was wondering how was he compensated during all this? I mean, was there a standard Mal fee? Malfeasance. So, yeah, um, it's actually a pretty. Uh, once I say it, you'll you'll realize it. They never stopped paying him. There's no change in Mal's situation or Neil's, even when Neil drifts off for a couple of years. So there was a Beatles organization, and Neil and Mal were part of it, and were constantly getting checks. Yeah, well, they okay. actually they had to go pick. Well, uh, you know, their whatever forty pounds a week or whatever it was. You know, different periods it did go up slowly but surely. Yeah, they would be paid. And they would go pick up their stipends. Well, I hope they got a raise when Alan Klein came in. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, they don't because, uh, and I may be, again, I need to check my notes, but it's hard to move things once Alan's involved because John in particular felt like he needed to rein in spending. Uh, remember what's John's famous line? A million pounds a week we're losing or something ridiculous that just looked right. true. Tony Bramwell said, yeah, they were losing a lot of money a week because John and Yoko were spending it. But John would give these lectures to all the office staff about not spending money. But bed-ins aren't cheap. No, those bed-ins. You don't just stage a bed-in. Right, kid? <laughs> That's you right. Know. I know. Yeah, I mean, they, tell me about. yeah, of course. They're expensive propositions. So, yeah, they're not cheap. But Mal, at this point, to finish your, your answer, John, is also getting uh, essentially petty cash. There have been moments throughout their career when they would just hand him thousands of pounds to go out and hand Here, go, go do this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how he buy the Sonic Blue Strats, right? Mal didn't buy them on consignment, you know, or anything. So uh, what he would do is he would carry out this money. One of the, the differences in the post Beatle world is, for example, in the making of All Things Must Pass, it was Mal who sat around every day with about 5,000 pounds 
And when Bobby Keys would record a, a sax solo, Mal would be like, here you go. Here's yeah. your one-time payment. See ya. And then he'd write it all down. So, Well, we should help you very much in your All Things Must Pass book. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was thinking about Ken Womack when he, when he was doing all that. <laughs> oh, well. All right. Audience questions. Do we have anything for... Is it true that he wrote lines in Fixing a Hole with Paul? I wrote Sergeant Pepper Fixing a Hole with Paul. It was at a point when he was living in his house in London. His housekeeper had left, and I, I lived with him for four months. Mm-hmm. And on top of the house, he had a small music room, you know. And uh, we used to sit at the piano, and that's when we wrote Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, sure. Uh, here's how I put that. You know, did he sit down and write lyrics, you know, line by line? Um, there's a great anecdote that John Lennon gives us, right, about uh, Eleanor Rigby, where he actually solicits help from Mal and Neil specifically. And John's kind of thinking, well, Mal's a telephone engineer and Neil's a failed accountant. <laughs> what about me? Why did you just say, John, help me with the lyrics, you know? And he and George did help with pretty significantly for that song. So... Everybody was throwing out lyrics. So, yeah, Mal helps with lots of lyrics. There'll be some that'll surprise you. That is a songwriting process. Yeah, sure. It's part of the process. I would say it as a side note. I think that perhaps because of litigation and other issues, we do a much better job now about meeting out songwriting credit than anybody did back then. We had the myth of the solitary genius, right? Lennon and McCartney, right, are this great big thing. And and of course, they didn't write all the songs together, as we know. They were often helped by other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure. Did they write Ronnie Scott's sax solo yeah. for Lady Madonna? I think not. We're oh, Paul might have. Paul, he did not. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I I spent a lot of time thinking about that okay. for, for George Martin. So ideation, we're just simply much better now at assigning it. You know, Linda McCartney wrote "Come Together," but damn it, is that the same song without that drum cadence? No way. Right. Exactly. And I know who wrote that. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't Bernard Purdy. <laughs> Ken, did Mal have a hard time maintaining diplomacy with the four ex-Beatles in that first kind of couple of years after the breakup? We knew he was tight with John and George, and, but specifically Paul, you kind of touched on this a little bit at the top of your discussion. Given that the three kind of really against for Paul at this point with the lawsuit and everything, how does Mal kind of achieve or maintain that diplomacy with with all four Beatles, but really Paul, when all three were kind of really kind of against him in those first couple of years until things start to thaw, you know, after Alan Klein is out of the picture. I have a good answer for you on this, um, Andy, and that is, you know, Mal is five years older uh, for the most part than, than them, eight years older than George. Uh, he has two kids and a wife. Is he responsible with that? Not always, but... He does have obligations and responsibilities. He's not a big gossip. He doesn't trash talk people because he wants to be in the picture later, so he's not going to trash anybody. He's a good politician. And they didn't spend a lot of time sitting around trashing Paul either. You know, they love the guy. Um, They hated their situation. So Mal didn't have to be too good of a diplomat. He kept great relationships with everybody he possibly could. Yeah. That was part of his game. He says in that recording, right? I, yeah. My gig is people. He loves people. And he will do everything he can not to have those kind of gutter relations. And he's a great forgiver, probably because he wants to be forgiven too. Yeah. Because he's got some things to forgive. 
<laughs> a lot of them. It just must have been so hard given the given the contention of that period, especially like '71 with John and Paul slinging mud at each other, and you know they're slinging mud at each other. But we know that you know it, they don't want to do that. You start to disaggregate the story. We can tell that maybe Paul didn't hate that version of Long and Winding Road as much as he said. Maybe that was a lawyer's, God rest Johnny's been sold, but maybe that was a, a legal recommendation that there's a reason that the partnerships have been violated. Right. You know? Paul sure liked that it was a number one song in the United States. Like, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, I think some of that, they understand the legal fictions of what's going on. Of course, by 73, they're rallying around Klein. Right. You know, and, and Paul's getting to enjoy the fact that John said, well, maybe Paul was right about After this all, one. I yeah. think he had this one down. He yeah. still should have suggested it relevant. Yeah, that's a great YouTube <laughs> clip. That's probably one of my favorite YouTube clips of John Lennon post-Beatle. But, and I've been, I've been able to see a lot of the, uh, not all of them, I still want some. So if anybody out there has access to these, I'd love to see them. But the depositions for when Alan Klein is suing them, right, are wonderful. You know, because John is just speaking truth to power, and they're trying to say that Alan was thwarted somehow by Neil Aspinall. Neil is like trying to dry out somewhere, and Alan's lawyers are trying to suggest that somehow Neil had thwarted his role in the in the company. So they're asking all these questions: Who is this Neil Aspinall guy? And John's like, I mean, he's a guy we've known since like he doesn't even get the date right. It's like I think 1960. We've just known this guy forever. Well, does he run things? He's just this guy. John doesn't want to say who probably should be in the Betty Ford Clinic. Of course, there wasn't a Betty Ford Clinic. Yeah, it's not yet. History is is terrible that way. It's ruthless. But, you know, it's just funny because they did take each other for granted in so many ways. Did you ever hear from Neil Aspinall? Yes, Neil was in town uh, a couple of weeks ago. We spent a lot of time together. Did you meet at the cavern? Yes, we went to the cabin. Actually, um, the first time I ever worked for the Beatles was January 63, and Neil was at a session of the cabin. I was a bouncer part-time there because I was um, such a fan of theirs. I was going down so often that George said, hey, man, you're big and ugly enough. Why don't you become a bouncer and get paid and you get into the band room, meet the bands? So I was working there that night, and Neil had a terrible cold. He had the flu or something, and he asked me if I'd drive him down to London. And it was snowing heavy and everything. And I took time off from work and drove down to London for like four days. And then I joined them in August, 63. All right, one more question. Um, I'm going to cheat and ask you what I wanted to ask you. Really, I think a really quick one, and then what you've just actually, the Neil Aspinall um, question. So the quick question is, did, did Mal have a book contract when he passed? You know, you started by talking about that. Had he already signed, like, with a literary agency, Simon Schuster, or... Whatever, do yeah. we even know? Is that a quick answer? I, mean, I can give a quick answer to yeah. that. So I think they execute, again, I, I have to check it. I have the contract. I mean, one of the things about this project that's so fascinating is they kept everything. So I have the contract. I have the letters in advance of the contract. I talked to the fellow who negotiated, who's 96 and still alive, you know, who remembered seeing all of this material that Mal had. You know, um, it was a deal that was struck pretty fast. Mal had some pretty high-powered people working with him. It was not an agented book. He had an attorney who handled it, but they didn't need an agent. Uh, they put him together with Grosset and Dunlop. And, um, Mal- and, and they actually mentioned in the interview that uh, – 
the manuscript was due to them on the 12th of January, 1976. Right. And Mao got that date wrong. That's not true. It was later. He probably was like a lot of us authors and wasn't looking at his contract. Uh, The contract had a later date. He had a lot of time. Although weirdly, his attorney and the the editor at Grosset, I don't know what they were planning to do, but they were starting to think about a summer release. And it had a lot of art. I don't think there's ever a way they make that. Well, well, considering how long it's taken you to come up with this version of the book, a summer release wasn't happening. (laughs) It just wasn't. It wasn't. So, yeah, all of those pieces were in place. He got an advance. uh, I think the total advance was $26,000, which is big money. That's six figures then. He had gotten the first two pieces of it. The third piece would come with publication, and the book was complete. So there's my, I just cleared up a misnomer. The book was done. This is not some unfinished book. Um, We've kept mentioning Neil Aspinall, the Liverpool people. I think it's all such an interesting area. I realize that okay, there's no time, but I hope that you'll be pursuing that in the book. And I maybe that's your next project. I'm, um, I'm personally, I've I've always been really interested in Neil Aspinall, and you know he seems so elusive in many ways. Mal seems so there, and Neil seems to always want to be way in the background. Yeah, so what's interesting about those two guys is they often were good cop, bad cop. You know, they had roles they played. It was them against the world, often. It was them against the Beatles being yelled at, right? As they're tired and cranky and young, (laughs) they're getting the, the lion's share of the attacks, right? So Neil is kind of an elusive mystery man, Uh, I think even today. Um, Of course, tragically, he dies when he's finally in a space where he could start telling his story and had done so with Mr. Lewis and and was really, uh, they were having some great, I think it was great conversation. It was only one, right? Uh, When Neil, of course, was diagnosed, dies in New York City the next year. They were, Neil and Mal were very close. Uh, I, I think it was in the clip on Friday night that I played. He says, Neil's my best pal. They lived together for a couple of years um, in a flat, uh, two flats. They had two different flats in London. They would go get furniture together. They would go find Mona back in Liverpool, and they'd get furniture out of the, you know, the, the, above the Casbah, and they'd bring it up so they could have a couch. You know, you'd think your employers would outfit them with a furnished. Well, they as we were talking about minor league baseball players now get better do accommodations better, yeah. than that. Far better, yeah. So Mal and Neil would take a trailer up behind the van until Mal totaled it, uh, and they bring the furniture back up. So they were, you know, they humped it. Really, they were very close. When things got bad, they relied on each other. They were working on. Mal worked on the formative period for The Long and Winding Road, which, of course, becomes uh, the anthology. Its original name, I will tell you for the first time here, Mal and Neil called it for two years Scrapbook, <laughs> which I thought was a cool title. Yeah. And they would treat it like that. And they would they would sit and have hours of fun remembering Shea Stadium and sitting down. And, and Neil decided he was going to try to become a film editor. Well, considering I mean, we, we actually have a copy yeah. of that film now, that title actually makes perfect sense. It, it really does. It does. And they wrote it that it way. So they would sit there, and uh, there were some people who would remember them doing this in Savile Row before they closed down the lease. They would sit there giggling and writing up all this material, oblivious to everybody else, the two of them just having a, a good old time. So, you know, they had to trust each other like nobody else did because it was often the two of them 
against a thousand Australians, right? <laughs> and Mal trying to use his body because he's a much bigger guy to make that last 30 feet into the parking garage. Well, we'll end there. Uh, but I will say, Mal was only 6'3". Mal was only an inch taller than I am. You know, why exactly do they keep calling him the gentle giant? <laughs> because the Beatles were not 5'11". Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We've all seen uh, those early documents that, that Brian sent out that has the, their descriptions, and they're, they're almost universally wrong, right? They're little guys. Ringo's the littlest guy, as he reminds us on more than one occasion. And have you seen the, the, the actual rubber soul jacket? It's amazing that any human would fit into them sometimes. Now, let's let's give Mal his due. He is tall, but he's also wide. Yeah. You know, Mal is a big uh, guy, and at certain points in this story, until we get into the later 60s, he is incredibly fit. Mal would ride his bicycle, you know, 200 miles a week. He would swim uh, in the ocean. <laughs> He was, uh, this is what he did. So he's really a strong, strong guy who's in great shape. And he's performing the Herculean task of single-handedly masterminding the backstage for the Beatles. And usually their supporting act. So, you know, and not that you're not fit. I mean, well, look at this. Yeah, there you go. Look at this. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Well, let's just say it now. This is, the Beatles are my favorite subject. I mean, I can talk for hours now. Well, the book's going to be 11 years, you know, living with the Beatles. A lot of experience. Living, loving, and... <laughs> all right. Uh, well, that's about all of our time. Uh, let's give a big round of applause to Ken Womack. Your book is out. One of your books is out roughly Father's Day next year. That's the plan. Yes, that's right. The biography, which is still untitled. Thought I had one last week. Turns out it's not going to be the title. I'll tell you why later. Um, and then the second one, which is everything. And I, and I want to add this this uh, important um, corollary. It's going to be the whole enchilada, right? All of the diaries, all of the manuscripts. Because I think at that, that point, I've had my time with it. It needs to belong to everybody else to go down and run down their own rabbit holes to figure out their own stories. Because... Yeah. I think there's a world in which people will find connections that I simply am not equipped to find, who are people who take deep dives, right, like Andy with Paul McCartney or, or others, right, who spend their time in a certain niche of this story, and they're going to find things we did I only dream of, right? They're going to make connections. And sometimes it'll have nothing to do with narrative mouths, where it will just be a note that he's put in about so-and-so or an object or an item. And I look forward to that. I think that's going to be so much that's, more That's fun. going to be amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, Kit, closing comments here? Well, boy, that's hard to follow up. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. But as always, Ken, that those are just uh, – I, I cannot wait for these books to come out. Uh, it's just been wonderful walking down uh, memory lane and talking about Mal's incredible role in the Beatles story. Always great to be with you. And thank you, Ed, for uh, asking me to be a part of this very special edition of when they was fab and john yeah i'm i'm, I'm glad we could we could make this work out john you have any comments to close out here no oh, this is great a lot of fun i only wish that i was there in person to experience what's all's going on maybe next year thanks ken it was great by the way ken i just finished maximum volume it's great well thank you and thanks guys for letting me prattle on i need to shut up i don't like oh, yeah. as much besides every time i'm around Ed and kid i start to give away stuff so i need to <laughs> thank you everybody we will be back 
Next week with a new show. <laughs> right. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. do the music and everything and I'll do anything in the world to make you feel comfortable doing that and I walked into the control room one night and the air was electric you could cut it with a knife you know it was really it was sort of snarling <laughs> and I just walked in and dropped the tray cups and it was all the old turned down hey, hey look at the dummy <laughs> you know but then they had a common en- enemy uh, the common denominator again yeah, you see right. They swung, they got diverted, and so then it broke the ice, and they're all laughing and shouting, eh, look at the dummy dropping cups all over the floor, and back into the, the music again. So you were willing to become the better the joke to get sure, them? Sure, sure. What? what? I didn't mind. While they're laughing at you, they can't be shouting at you, can they? <laughs> well, you got a point there. <laughs> you know. It's really, it's been great having you on the show. I love and it. I'm it's my favorite subject, the Beatles. I... I do like to talk about yeah, it. It's my favorite subject, too. <laughs> we could go Laura. on for hours. Thank, Thank you very you much for, for having me. Thank you for coming down and being with me. Pleasure. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.